Welcome to The Magic Spark. I'm your host and personal wellness witch, Tandy Gutierrez. This podcast is for the open-hearted magic makers seeking to cultivate consistent self-evolution, or as I like to call it, self-revolution. It aims to be a home base for continually stumbling upon things that ignite the healing spark in you, be that practical or magical. Now, let's see what that spark is for you in today's episode. Hello, my magic makers. You're listening to episode four. This episode launches our four in 40 format. Say that 10 times fast. Our unicorn wellness community will be familiar with this as we began it on IGTV and have graduated the conversations, which have proven to be so rich here to a podcast format. For full full details on the episode formats, you can check out Minisode number one. But the basics of our four and 40 format is to have guests answer the same four questions in 40 minutes. If we chat longer than that because things are jamming, that's just a bonus. These questions invite my guests to be highly vulnerable and potentially very off script from their typical roles and interviews in the world. I often say that healers, practitioners, teachers, artists, coaches, mentors don't really know more than anyone else. We're just up ahead on the path with the flashlight, shouting back tips, tactics, and warnings of fallen trees, loose steps, or optimal photo op moments. By sharing our stories of trauma, wounds, or shadows, whatever language resonates with you, we begin to diffuse, normalize, and heal these shadows, wounds, and traumas. Healing requires that we pull all the things we don't want to discuss out of the dark, dredge the pond, so to speak. Witches know the work of the shadows, and the shadows are where healing actually happens All good things are first curated, created, and crafted in the dark before they're ready to actually be birthed and given to the world. The guests for these four in 40 interviews are brave souls that accept this invite to share these two major wounding points and therefore major healing points with us. Today, we have a very special guest, Mateo Gutierrez. Mateo is a Brooklyn-based contemporary artist who makes large-scale hand-embroidered paintings. The paintings tell a story of the traumatic conditions of modern American society through the lens of immigration and mass shootings. Mateo grew up in Tokyo, Japan, where he experienced firsthand a culture struggling between a traditional way of life and the contemporary influences of American globalism. After moving to the United States in his late teens, he struggled with his own conflicted relationship to the U.S. His work is both a socio-political and a deeply personal reflection on what it means to be American from the perspective of an outsider as both foreign-born and Latino. Mateo Gutierrez, welcome to The Magic Spark. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And full disclosure... Mateo is also my person in this lifetime and many others. 
We are husband and wife and business partners. And I chose Mateo to be my very first guest because we do nearly everything together. <laughs> and two, because this year, 2022 is the year of the lover's card in the tarot. And I thought what's more appropriate than navigating communication and right partnership to launch this format on this platform. I truly believe that Mateo and I make magic together in this world. So Mateo, having you here to share your biggest gift to this lifetime is such a blessing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you. <laughs> So are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Let's get to the questions. These four questions are the same every time, right? And the first one may seem redundant, but I just read your bio, a very short bio. So <laughs> <laughs> this is your opportunity to be very off script and very open. What is your magic in the world? Who are you and what do you do? Okay. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And I'm excited to be on this podcast because I love what you're doing here. And I think it's really neat. And I love these four and 40 questions. I think they're really <clears throat> interesting questions and they're challenging and they're kind of sneaky in that way. And they really made me kind of uh, sort of think about some things that I realized maybe I thought I was thinking about them quite deeply, but when challenged to actually sit down with the task of talking about them, I realized maybe I haven't thought about some of these things so well. So for the first question, what is my magic? <clears throat> I think this is a, always a hard question for me because it really does come into, uh, you know, thinking of myself in super positive terms and what am I great at and all that. So I, I sort of boiled it down to just having an honest gut feeling about what it is that I feel that I really contribute to the world that comes most naturally to me. That is, you know, separating out being a dad or being a partner, just what do I do? And so I, I, I truly tried to think of a way to not say being an artist, you know, and I would say that my magic is really actually making images with my hands. It's just feels like a natural gift. I'll let the world decide whether or not they think it's actually a gift, <laughs> but it feels like a natural gift to me. I feel like when I come up with an idea for an image that it flows very naturally for me to pick up paint, markers, pencils, embroidery thread, um, really anything at my disposal and feel very comfortable very free and very happy making that image. I struggle with it, you know, because I think any, any art form is never just purely blissful, you know, happy, happy, make, make, which I think is, you know, one of the lies of making art is that it's always blissful. It's not, it's challenging and it's hard, but it truly does have this feeling of flowing very naturally from me. And I get such incredible reward from the end images that I make just personally. It's, it is the highest level of work gratification. I'm in my flow, so to speak. I'll make an image, I'll step back, I'll keep working on it. That process will go on and on. And over the 30 plus years that I've been doing this, because I started when I was 18 years old, um, and I started with the same sort of excitement, 
it has always just flowed and it's always been incredibly rewarding. And so that feels like my magic. That, that I would truly describe, I can't really describe anything besides maybe having children or love itself, our love, our love for our children. That feels magic too, but on a personal level, making images with my hands just feels like magic. So that's, that's really what my magic is in the world. You know, I love this. I, you are absolutely a magic maker. And I wanted to laugh because, you know, when you were saying that, like, it's not blissful to make work. I'm like, I don't know any true artist that would say that it's blissful. It always feels painful in some way. Yeah. yeah. They're like, ah, it has to come through me. And in some ways, this isn't, you know, a slightly unfair interview and yet not like this is all about you and your work and your magic, but being in witness of you as you create, I would absolutely confirm that that is your magic in this world that you very much channel these images. It's not a cognitive process to witness your process. No, no. And it's always bigger than me. That's the other thing that's really interesting is once I'm done making a work, Um, No matter how far I've thought of it conceptually, no matter how political it is, my work is very political, as you know, no matter um, how much of the ideas inform the work, the work inevitably ends up much larger than the ideas, far larger. And that's a magic process in and of itself. And there are many artists, I've met with many artists who really do have a different process. I go in on my Sundays and I paint my yellows and it's work and it's four hours of painting yellows and God bless them. Maybe that's their form of magic. That's not mine. You know, mine is I go in with a pile of embroidery thread and somehow that's going to turn into a face. And I really have no idea how I set up a structure and it feels magic. It's like a face just emerges. And I love that. I love not thinking about it that much. I love not over-intellectualizing it. Um, I had uh, my brother, who you know, Stephen, who I talked to quite a bit in email, ask me about some good books to read recently for art critics. And he asked me who I read. And my response was, I actually really don't read art criticism, very rarely. And part of the reason I don't read art criticism is because it feels like it takes away some of that magic. I don't want to over-intellectualize my work. I don't want to get into that process with it. So that's just a long way of saying that's definitely my magic and I'm really grateful for it. Well, and you keep it in this really beautiful, genuinely magical space of it. I mean, you're an incredibly intelligent, cognitive, uh, analytical thinker, but it's fascinating to watch you work because your work Yes, it integrates those things. It goes to those places very easily, but it isn't that that creates them. And you no. do have this, I, I was going to say, even before you offered the, the book recommendations and that question, like that sort of path of things is that I grew up in the arts, right? I have a theater degree, an acting degree and a dance degree. And so uh, around a lot of artists, right? Creative thinkers, people creating and making and doing different, but you are the artist that I have been in witness to that is the least um, systematic in your approach. And I know that that seems like art and systems don't go together, but like you said, 
everybody has a unique way of doing things. And some artists do like they layer things and it takes on its organic piece, but yours is so, I don't even know how to explain it. And I'm only trying here because we're in a, an audio format and we're, you know, there'll be links below in the show notes to your work, to, to your site, but you right. have to almost be in the room to see them because there's so many layers of it. Like it's so wildly creative, but so gorgeous. It's, it is to me like witnessing magic where you're like, I don't know how the hell that just happened. And it was a hot mess in process. Yeah. And I really enjoy that. And you know, from my past that there was a point very early on when I was a very young man that I really considered getting a PhD in philosophy and teaching philosophy. And I remember that moment. It was literally a fork in the road where I said, I'm either going to paint or I'm going to study philosophy. And I realized that I just did this very simple sort of logical progression of my mind and visualized myself as a professor of philosophy. And it made me sad, to be honest. I didn't want to live in that purely cognitive world. It, it felt like, it's really interesting. I'm realizing this as I say right now, it felt like no magic. And it felt like someone was taking my magic in life away. And I was like, I have to paint. That's, that's my music. That's my sound. That's my color in life. Yeah. Well, magic gets picked apart a lot, like the, you know, word witch. It's like, what does it mean to you? And, and what is it? And it, it's, to me, it's that sparkle. It is the unknown of life. It's the magic that happens. It can be love. It can be works of art, but it's that thing that if it were taken away, you're like, well, things would just suck. You know, like it would just be very. I feel like, I feel like magic is the expression of the mystery. It's the, you know, the thing we cannot put words to, but somehow it comes out. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's just what it is for me. Well, I think, yeah. I mean, it's going to be unique to everybody, but it really, yeah, that path. Again, you had this opportunity and choice to head down a different path of things that, again, you're very gifted and talented and capable of, but it wasn't where the magic was for you. No. Um, I, in this question that what is your magic in the world? You know, part of it, especially in Western culture, it's always like, what do you do? You know, what's your work? What's yeah. your career? <laughs> and I do think it's important because this is how we identify, right? This is how we're spending so much of our lives and what we are putting into the world. But so like, we know that you're an artist and that you channel and that um, it you make work. I'm sneaking in a question because we have a tiny bit of time I here. But I yeah, right? You see, do you like yeah. to sneak in? <laughs> like, yep. There was no It's purpose. coming. <laughs> um, <laughs> what do you aim to do with your work? What do you want it to do in the world to facilitate, to initiate, well, to get? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good question. And I would say there two sides to it. Um, I'll talk about the side that I think is more relevant to this conversation, which, and I'm happy to talk about the other piece too, if you want to, but the, the, for this conversation, the experience, I would say that I want the person viewing the work to have is I, I ultimately want my work to create uh, a sense of dignity in the viewer, that they are valued as a human being. Because I do feel that in the world, in our culture, and just the way humans are, sadly, still as very emotionally unevolved creatures, that we are told that our lives are disposable. There's so much indignity in living. 
And I, I believe that art can really add dignity back to life. So I would like my work to have the effect on people of them feeling that someone took some imagery and took a long time and very carefully and thoughtfully uh, reproduced these images and elicited emotions that were very real, uh, often, as you know about my work, very tragic images, um, but not just to make someone feel sad or not to make someone say, wow, the world really is broken, but to say, you're right, the world is broken. I acknowledge you as a person, your feelings are valid, and this isn't okay. So ultimately it is the creation of dignity and respect for every single person's human experience that we do matter. That is really the end that I hope for. Well, I'm big in the work that I do, right? Of honoring grief, mourning, and loss. Make a joke out of it in Magical Mentoring and on Unicorn Wellness, but and this is going to be real old school too, but like the Barbara Walters effect that when clients get to the point of like that breakthrough teariness, not because yeah. I want them to be sad or because I think we should feel it, this is nothing to do with shame or judgment. It's the release, right? It's the expression and it's the honoring of grief, mourning and loss and how messy this 3d human incarnation is. And particularly Western culture, we do a terrible job of honoring moments of grief, trauma, and wounding yeah. to get into the questions that we're going to get into, which is part of why I love this format because it, you know, anger is a part of the spectrum of healing, grief and mourning are a necessary component, but we try to skip over it. You know, it's like right. hurry up and get back to work. And it, it's a major issue for our culture and our country if we're going to be real specific about it, that we don't pause to feel it. And so I agree. And I think that the, what I'm trying to bring up with my work is to say in a way, because the way I feel, and I would imagine perhaps a lot of people feel, or maybe they don't re recognize that they feel is when you see images of people of the kinds of images that I work with, which are very tragic, difficult images of immigration, mass shootings, those types of things that I often feel like, how dare the world put these images in front of me as if I'm not going to feel them constantly. They're horrible images, they're sad, and we should all stop immediately and do something about it. We, we shouldn't just continue with our daily lives. And it almost feels slightly insulting to expect me to do that. And so in a way, what I'm trying to say is, no, no, I don't expect you to do that. I actually value the fact that these images are probably quite traumatic for you as they are for me. So let's honor that pain. And then hopefully through that, we create a world where we don't allow that anymore. That would seem absurd to think that it would be okay for there to be children terrified and destitute at our border. We would think I couldn't tolerate that for a minute. Or the idea that there are mass shootings in our country constantly by our children even uh, committed against each other that we would stop and say, I can't even imagine a world like that. That's how we do feel, I think. I believe in our hearts, we do feel that way. We're just not being given the dignity and space to do that. And we're actually being, I believe, in a very, I'm gonna say this in a very political way, I believe this is a, like a conspiracy against our own hearts. It is a I, way of making us not actually feel to allow it to continue. I 
completely agree. And without going too far off, you know, from (laughs) no, 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 no. I, I want to go there. I just feel like it needs its own podcast, right? Like we're doing little blips here, but it's important because it it all speaks to the same thing. And this is again, what I hope to do with the four and 40 with these four questions is understand that like healing has to happen at a collective level, but in order for that to happen, it has to happen at an individual level in order for it to happen individually. We have to communicate it. We have to pull it out of the shadows. We have to normalize it and we can't hide it. Right. I, there was, I was trying to take good notes to make a full like linear line through it, but you know, we're not given the issue with it. I'm going to be bold here, right? Bold statement is that one, we know it's dehumanizing, but the speed at which we're asked to process as a culture, it's time that's not given to us for processing. And what your work gives is time because when you walk in and you can look at it in soft textures, right? The work that you do is on, on, you know, um, uh, what is it called? Stabilizer. You know, stabilizer. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's fabric and yep. it's, you know, then you have uh, embroidery thread on top. So it's soft, right? There's texture to it. That's soft and you're standing in front of it and you can stand there as long as you like, which gives you time, gives your primal system time mm-hmm. to begin to process because everything right. at the yeah. speed of technology is those 30 second blips and probably less these days, right? Which is what dehumanizes it, which is what desensitizes us, which is why we're so accustomed to it at so many levels. We're not right. even processing it, but the subconscious right. system picks it up. Right. right. And so it's really fascinating because even as we talk through it, right? Like, what do you aim to do with your work? You're actually trying to give people a moment of pause to begin yeah. to process. Exactly. That's exactly right. Mass shootings are not even on our news cycle above the fold anymore. You'll see mass shootings in a story when there are multiple of them and it's below the fold. It doesn't even register as that important anymore. That's that's where we quote unquote progress to. Well, that should be terrifying to everyone, right? So it's like these sneaky things that the speed of things picks up, but as humans, our vessels are primal and our emotions are also primal in some ways. And I would argue because difference of perspective and opinion as we often have and verbiage is that actually we're highly emotionally evolved. We just don't get the time or the opportunity to express it. The culture that we're living in pushes us past those places, which is why we get into places of such deep depressions and anxiety because our primal systems know we need to process some things slow down (laughs) you know it's like when people come to unicorn wellness for a practice it's not about their wellness we call it that because it's just easier as humans but it's really about processing trauma to cultivate harmony some semblance of balance and to move through things yep okay i'm going to move on to number two can we do that okay yeah yeah for sure I mean, we could talk about this all day. I know we can. Yeah. Um, Good segue. Yeah. So number two, right? Because your work does speak to these things, right? So number two Mm -hmm. is what is the wound, shadow, or trauma that you are currently healing through? And I want to put a caveat on it in case someone doesn't know, right? I'm asking these questions because as humans, we are constantly moving through some wound, shadow, or trauma. And I don't state that to keep us bound to core wounds. It's because it's just human. Human is messy and there are things going on all the time. So there's always something we're moving through. Sometimes it's the tiny T, 
And sometimes it's the big mighty T of trauma. And we don't do trauma Olympics around here. This is just to normalize it. What is the wound, the shadow, the trauma that you're currently healing through? I have two, but I really think the the major one is self-worth for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But self-worth leading to uh, questions about self-trust. So I think that, you know, for me, self-worth, the question of self-worth as a male who has been indoctrinated with very specific gender ideas about what self-worth can mean, such as I'm powerful, uh, I'm a leader, um, people look up to me, people follow me, what I say is right, what I say is smart, that those are not uh, true indicators of self-worth. And I think that really sort of breaking that down and understanding a much, much more personal concept of what self-worth is, where self-worth is like self-trust. It is um, not feeling fundamentally undermined as a human being. I think um, that's the self-worth sort of wound that I'm currently, it's at the top of my list of things that are most important to me that I can feel I really need to work through right now that I need to pay attention to. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want me to talk more about that? Yeah. I do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying not to lead you right now. (laughs) The awkward silence. (laughs) I am your wifey too. Um, Well, um, why are you want me to talk about where I think that wound comes from or why I'm working through it or both? I mean, all both of those are great. Yeah. I well, think also a how mm-hmm. is always nice to hear too, because everyone does it differently, right? How they're working through. So the way I'm working through it, I think, first of all, one of the things about this podcast and these set of questions is that it's made me question how much I am working through it, honestly, yeah. right? I mean, it, it sounds great on paper, but to your point, Where's, where does it sort of meet the real world? What am I really doing? So I am trying to pay attention to anxiety in my body. When do I get agitated? When do I get angry? When do I get worried? And what I've begun to understand is that for me, that, that is self-worth. That comes down to, you know, maybe not completely and entirely and 100%, but that's the window in that I see right now is self-worth because when I get anxious, when I get angry, when I get fear-based and scarcity-based, it's that self-worth history um, and that I can feel it. Like I'm literally, the how is I can feel myself getting agitated, moving very, very quickly, which is a really strong indicator for me when I'm moving really fast, but not in a constructive way, not like you know painting really fast, for example but physically moving through space really fast, talking fast, um, thinking fast, trying to do five things at once, putting a pen down to start something else before I finish something else, and then putting that down to start something else. Those are all indicators to me that I don't trust myself, I'm afraid, and that comes down to my own sense of self-worth, probably a considerable amount of imposter syndrome, having moved 
you know, between vastly different cultures my whole life. Um, and also not having the support structures when I was growing up that I think would have benefited me in terms of understanding my own self-worth and value as a person. So the how is really physical, you know, it's like body stuff. How do I get myself to calm down? And, you know, you are my partner. So we can say here, like we had a conversation just a couple of days ago, like about how you felt that, you know, the most important thing for me in my next steps to some of the goals that I've set for myself are to meditate, to ground. And that was really loud because it's very true. It's that calming down for me. It's literally getting my feet set on the ground uh, and, and winding down. And, and I think that <laughs> interestingly, as we talk through this, I realize for me, calming down mean, has meant in the past danger. If you calm down, something can attack you. Something can happen that you don't want. Calming down is dangerous. You always have to be wound up and ready for the attack, which is really not healthy. You know, that's not a healthy way to live. And I don't think it's a productive way to live. I don't think it's a very satisfying way to live. So yeah, that's, that's where self-worth is for me and self-trust. I have so much to say about this. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> no, like number one, so I don't blow out the mic. Like, yes, you know, like being present in the vessel, right? For anyone who knows me prior to this podcast, like I teach body work, right? First and foremost, initially longest, but the vessel is such a powerful and wise teacher. It is constantly communicating with us. What we tend to get incorrect in this lifetime is the translation of it. But when you really can drop in and go, what is it telling me right now? Like, what, what am I, what's it doing? Right. Yeah. Then it's their data points, right? It, it is still anxiety. It is still might also be classified as, you know, ADD, ADHD, and all of these things are valid, not to discredit any of those diagnoses, but also attachment to diagnoses can have us moving away from actually healing through them. So it's a really fine line of like knowing where things come from, but also being present in the vessel and what it's trying to communicate. And so I always teach from a, you know, practical and a magical standpoint, like do what we need to do in the practical spaces, but you're taking it to that magical space. How do yeah. I feel? What's yeah. it trying to communicate to me? What is that signal to me? Right. And, and breaking those things down and potentially without knowing it, because, you know, this is all about reprogramming the nervous system. So when we have experienced wounds, shadows, trauma, again, whatever language works, our system takes those on for survival. And there's so many levels of this because we have been, you know, we may be educated and understand that when something bad happens, this is trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Hey, we're living in a pandemic. Hey, you know, but then there are these other pieces that we don't cognitively register as traumas. I think we're learning our way through it as a culture for sure at higher rates. But when you discuss moves across cultures, right? This third culture kid, you know, experience racism, right? These are wounds and traumas that we think are just systemic. So then it becomes cognitive, but they're actually physical. Cause they, they put you in unsafe spaces. Your body starts to get your fight, flight, freeze, or fawn is activated. 
So when you're witnessing and can be in witness of like, what is my vessel doing? Oh, something might actually be scaring me or worrying me. And I need to navigate that. Is this feeling fat or is it this preconditioned response? Because there's also a bit about our, our nervous systems and it's connected to the psoas, like one of our, you know, our deep hip flexor muscles that when we've experienced, it doesn't matter, little T or big T trauma, that it gets you, it like gets, it's like a record, like an old school record that skips. Yeah. It like can't move on. And so it has to be reconditioned, reset. Yeah. And you're in the process of doing that just by being present with it. So powerful. Yeah. And I think that another big thing I've recognized is just understanding my, my dad, who was, you know, very, obviously very present. Well, I guess not, obviously he was very present in my life. You know, he was always there and he, what he went through is a Latino male ethnic, like from a standpoint of ethnicity and the anger that he had just the extreme anger that in the machismo and just how that was in his eyes, anger and grandiosity were self-worth, but they were the exact opposite. And so for me, you know, anger and grandiosity were where you had to go to find your self-worth. And what I'm realizing is that that's the exact opposite direction of where you want to go. Cause that's not really self-worth. That's an intense state of anxiety and fear and all the things that devalue your sense of self. And then the other point I wanted to make to your point, which is a really good one is, you know, self-worth is a tricky one. I think they're all probably all of the shadow wounds are tricky, but like, you know, self-worth, you can get in a cycle that I want to be careful of with myself of not feeling like, wow, I have such huge self-worth issues. Therefore I'm worthless. <laughs> you know, it's like a little bit of a spiral. So I'm also reminding myself of like, my sense of calm and my ability to really generate calm, real value, sense of self-worth, trust can be seen in my work, my artwork. So it's there, you know, there is a lot there. Uh, it just needs, a, it needs to learn how to live in the world a little better. That's all. It doesn't have to be so huge and feeling insurmountable. Yeah. Yeah. I want to drop that little bit in there too, that when we talk about, you know, Latin men has a whole nother piece, you know, but just toxic masculinity as a big blanket, yeah. broad statement, right. That anger is just really loud sadness. Right. And there's so much transgenerational pain there. Right. You know? And these are the ancestral wounds and the familial right. wounds, like right. all of the, because I feel like this is transformative to hear. And I just don't think we can hear it enough, particularly these days that anger is really loud sadness. And it's like, no, that person was not sad. They were mad. And it's like, yes. And it's these layers of what hasn't been seen, what hasn't been protected, what hasn't been advocated for. Right. And so we can talk about the patriarchy and toxic masculinity and we do. Mm -hmm. But if we don't understand that dismantling it is as much a benefit to those who identify as male as it is to those who identify as female or those who don't identify, right? Like right. it's important to everyone to dismantle it because yeah. 
it keeps us in boxes. And that anger is often the only right emotion, typically men, those who identify as male are allowed. It's the only emotion you're allowed right. <laughs> to, to navigate with. So whether you're sad, whether you're frustrated, whether, you know, you're scared, it just all comes out angry. And so, it's like, yeah. It's like the podcast that we shared, uh, a couple times recently uh, with regard to men, one of the really interesting topics that they discussed was uh, emasculation, where what, there's no female term for that. There's only a male one. And why is it that men are the ones that are emasculated? Why is there this, you know, this paradigm that men feel that if they become more vulnerable, question themselves, those types of things, look at their emotions, look at their wounds, that this is emasculating? you know, that's a, that's a problem right off the bat. You know, it shouldn't be, that shouldn't even be in there. It shouldn't be a question. It should just be, you're looking at yourself. You're trying to make yourself a better, healthier, happier person. And I think in, you know, my experience as a male and a Latino male and my father's history and my mother's history, and, you know, also Latino, Latina is um, that that's a very, very complex, deeply shame-based enterprise very very much so and you know so that's been a there's there are a lot of complex layers when i go into self-worth but they're all you know they can all be navigated they're not you know i remember going to therapy a long time ago and having a therapist every now and then someone will say something and it's really loud and this therapist said you can go ahead and feel your feelings they're not going to kill you <laughs> like don't, right. don't yeah it's okay to cry you're not gonna feelings die aren't facts either <laughs> yeah it's, they're not gonna kill you like even if you like melt down and cry you're gonna be fine you're, guess what you're not gonna die it's actually gonna be fine yeah and i remember that being really really powerful statement like it's okay so look at yourself worth good for you me anyone right i want to add a little note the emasculating bit because it's really important to know where these pieces come from, right? It's, it's language of the patriarchy because via the patriarchy, masculine is best. So it's built into it. There's not a version of it for women because women are feminine, you know, feminine is already rung below. <laughs> like we all, like be, you know, so it's like, there isn't language for it, but again, this is the patriarchal construct and particularly of language, where language is so powerful, the language that we use in our day-to-day -day lives, how we express it, how we communicate it, and how we talk to ourselves, and even how we explain it, right? When we have different words to explain our feelings, that shifts how we process them. And it's deadly for men, as it is for everybody else. What I think men don't acknowledge is how deadly it is for them, too. They think the patriarchy is something I did. Oh, gosh, I have to change my behavior because I'm doing something wrong. No. You have to free yourself. <laughs> well, I also think that they, I mean, speaking for all men, um, the patriarchy gives them power. So it's scary to think that they should, or there'd be benefit in dismantling it. I mean, this is my experience, particularly with like cisgender white males. Again, yeah. it's a bigger topic, but I think you don't identify with that for all kinds of reasons, right? Like right. you've never <laughs> navigated the same way in, in those concept, concepts, you know, constructs 
trying to say those two words at the same time. Um, Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Those. Yep. Okay. Level up. What right. do you consider to be the wound, shadow, trauma of your lifetime? And and this is the one that we're that you're continually healing at the next or different level, and it may never go away, right? We have challenges in our lifetimes. It can be in our astrological charts. It's in our karma. You know, what do you consider to be the wound of your lifetime? Well, this is a really hard one, and I thought about it a lot, and I came up with um, belonging as my key sort of central sense of identity that I don't know I will ever fully shed or uh, it's just something that is always there. I think it comes from a lot of different sources. So for me, belonging by that, I meaning not having a sense of belonging anywhere. Um, and which is why my family is so important to me. You guys, you and Milo and Sam and Marco, because you are my sense of belonging in the world. And I don't have one otherwise. I grew up all over the world. Um, I've had a very complex identity as a Latino male and then moving to the United States when I was 16, uh, not understanding what it meant to be a Latino. And then also understanding over the years of my lifehood, my life that I probably am very clearly non-binary. I don't really identify with the male gender in any particularly clear way. Um, so there's always been this, I, I've never fit into the culture that I've been in because I've never belonged to it. I've never literally had the time to grow up in it and have the same experiences where I can speak to it in the same way. And a lot of this is third culture stuff. I think a lot of it has come from my parents and their experiences as well as feeling uh, as, uh, you know, their minority status in the United States. My mom came here when she was eight. She didn't speak English from Latin America and so I think all of that, and there has been tremendous shame that I've only acknowledged as an adult coming from both my parents around their own um, ethnicity. And I've seen my mom really grapple with that and embrace it and go back to speaking Spanish again and really honing her Spanish and growing her ability to speak Spanish. And I've seen that as sort of a, you know, an act of self-love for her that's been really nice to see. And so I think the bottom line is, is this underlying sense that I don't belong. But the thing of it is, is that what I've also realized is that this wound, this shadow is also on the flip side, perhaps in my case, maybe in everybody's case, I don't know, maybe you can speak to this. In some ways, it's my greatest gift too. And yeah. so, you know, I, I think that's the way these things can sometimes be, you know, the thing that defines you the most that sort of uh, you cannot escape or you feel like you cannot escape or you feel you need to escape can also be your greatest blessing. It can give you a perspective and a sense in the world that you otherwise could not have. Um, so yeah, so that, that is what I would describe as my primal, most central lifetime shadow, really. It's such a... I mean, they're all big, but this is a big one and it's something I, yeah, I could talk for hours about this one. Um, yeah. I really do subscribe to our greatest wounds when we are willing to work 
with them become our greatest strengths. It mm. is why I do what I do. It's why I love magical mentoring um, and why I love these conversations. And when I was younger, because I have experienced a lot of traumas and a lot of issues with belonging in my lifetime as well. And I think sometimes it can be heard of, of this is, you know, it's kind of, it just gets so minimized of like, it's eventually going to be good for you. And it's like, no, 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 that's not what anybody's saying. It's not, no, we're not headed that direction. Right. But human incarnation is the gauntlet. Like we're here to learn it's messy. We're here to alchemize. We're here to heal. We're here to, you know, if you subscribe to the language of like burning karma, right? We have these energetic buildups of things. And so when you can work through these big wounds and shadows, the hard stuff, like when you head straight form, you know, fear is the flag go there because your greatest reward really is waiting when you dredge the pond, it's not simple. It is not comfortable. There's no way of knowing how it's going to go, except that it is better on the other side. Right. And it's so powerful. And as someone personally, who feels like I, I I might have a, you know, I could give the trauma Olympics a good go. (laughs) (laughs) I could be a contender Um, (laughs) that it, it does give you something worth working towards that if I personally had to experience and go through these things, the hell it should be of benefit to someone else, number one, and two, I can be a helper. And this is again, to go back to the four and 40 questions that like being a helper or a healer doesn't mean you have to be a coach, a mentor, a practitioner, like as an artist, you're a healer, right? Like you're giving people a moment of pause to process trauma. That's healing. And so when you become a helper, just simply moving past things into survival, being able to integrate them, letting your wounds and your traumas not, you know, sandbag you and pull you down to the depths of the ocean is healing for others to witness and to see and to hear again, why it's so important that we talk about these things and that we give them time and space. Right. And I love that you, you touched on it right. The, like the shame that was ingrained in your household, like trying to not only Americanize, is that even the right word? Right. But to seem as white as possible. Right. That is traumatic (laughs) at a core level. Like do not speak, you know, your native language in the house because that's going to be a dead giveaway. Right. Like, and so by reclaiming these pieces, this is what healing looks like. This is what thrival looks like. And this is what it's all about with these traumas of a lifetime. And when there's layers of them, they really can be a beautiful gift. It just may take a while for them to present and to feel like that. Cause sometimes they do just feel heavy and hard and oppressive they did for most of my life and they were uh unlivable you know like uh, they were almost impossible to bear because i i didn't i was handed an impossibility so i was always told that um you know the the question of being latino was a dark deep dark secret in our household which we just didn't discuss and we were we spoke english in the household and I didn't learn until much later that our family, half of my entire family 
currently lives in Puerto Rico or Puerto Rican. <laughs> you know, I didn't learn that until I was in my 20s. It was hidden, literally hidden. I had my aunt tell the, our relatives when they would come visit in the United States not to speak Spanish around her. You know, I mean, these kinds of things. I had an aunt in Guatemala on my father's side who told my father she would never speak to him again because he implied that there was uh, Native American, Native Central American blood in our family, which there absolutely was. And it was clear and you could see in, in a wonderful, beautiful thing. What she said she would never speak to him again. So there was this incredible layer of shame. And then we would move to the United States or come back for home leave and my parents would ridicule Americans. Oh, they're so crass, they're so gross, they're so awful eating this junk food. So I wasn't American, but I was, but I wasn't Latino, but I was. So it's just unbelievably impossible situation to understand where I fit in. So there's this intense, just fundamental anxiety about belonging. <laughs> but, but again, the tremendous gift in all that is that through that, you are given the gift of total empathy. Every human being looked equal to me. Every human being looked the same. And so it was like the gift, this profound gift of empathy, which is why I feel the things that I feel and I make the work that I make. So blessing in disguise. But yeah. it wasn't a blessing to your point for a very long time. It was torturous and I didn't know what to do with it. Well, and took you down some paths of some addictions very and behaviors yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. to try to escape it. And I would right. argue and offer because we're in conversation here that again, normalizing, pulling them out of the shadows, just talking about them. Cause when we first, <laughs> can I share this? Cause when we first started yeah. dating and we would go out or I would introduce you to people and they'd be like, Oh, where are you from? You know? And you would have this one liner of I'm from, you know, Northern California. And I was like, yeah. well, no, you're not, you're really not. And I was confused. Right. And then you didn't really want to discuss it either. And then right. when we discussed it, I get it. Right. I'm going to paraphrase. My mom me. and dad grew up there and that's where we came back for home leave. So it felt like my American version of home. So I just used that, but was terrified. Anybody would ever say, oh yeah, I grew up in Oakland. I went to XYZ high school. Where'd you go to high school? Cause then my cover's blown. <laughs> you never told me that. Oh uh, yeah. Always. Well, and you had offered in the past too, that it was just too complicated. It took too long to explain yeah. the life that you'd had. And it also spoke to specifically like, you know, Western American culture. It's like, does not compute if you are not from the U S you know, like that right. they couldn't hold it, that you had this, I thought it was fascinating and interesting and like exciting, you know, life that was really like your eyes were wide open from the very beginning to different places and spaces and cultures and concepts. And, but on the flip side of that, by not, although not your responsibility, if you don't want it to be, but you didn't give anyone a chance to lean or learn into that either. Right. Your story oh, can help. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of arrogance in that too. You know, how, like, who am I to say that someone can't go, wow, that's really interesting. Totally. <laughs> totally. Well, really and not, cool. you know, yeah, you're not, it's kind of that, like, you're not giving people the opportunity to love you for you and your unique story and your unique experience in this lifetime. Yeah. Well, again, what I learned over time was, you know, I would meet a friend as I did, who was born and raised in Denver, Colorado, a Caucasian kid who came from an affluent background. 
and was one of the most worldly, thoughtful, intelligent people I've ever met in my life. Didn't travel anywhere. So there's a lot of arrogance in this idea of like, well, people just aren't going to understand it. Actually, they might understand it just fine. Yeah. <laughs> Give them a chance. Give them a chance. Yeah. You ain't so special. <laughs> <laughs> Your trauma is not a big T. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Get over yourself. You are not a contender. Just kidding. <laughs> um, okay. Beautiful. Yeah. All right. Well, let's sneak a little extra in here. Cause this is beautiful. Um, okay. The trauma of your lifetime, the wound of belonging. How are you working? with that? How are you helping to heal through it at the next level? Um, I would say there's, you know, work being done and then work I want to do. Work being done is to do the things that we're talking about right here and now, is to understand the gift that it comes with that, so that it's not something that seems like a burden or that carries shame. And I feel very well resolved on that. I actually feel like that evolution has very much taken place and I'm in a very good place with it. I think that the next step for me is truly friendships. And I think that's been something that goes back to a very specific wound, like an actual event that took place in my life, which was moving from Tokyo, Japan to the United States and I was 16 years old and I had very close friends and I knew that I would never see them again. And it was deeply traumatic and hard for me and it was extremely abrupt. There was very little warning. And I think at that point, something inside me broke in my ability to develop and nurture lasting friendships. And the way that relates to uh, belonging is that I have from that point felt that, well, nobody can understand me or what I went through or my experiences, it's too complicated. Therefore, you know, everybody, I, I couldn't possibly have friends. And which is, a, again, a very, when you break it down, quite an arrogant position to take because everybody has a complex life and we're not all that special. And so the next step for me, the thing that I want to work on, which is kind of answering your question, is to develop some. Um, good friendships, to be accepting of people, to remove the judge in me, to remove the, the part of me that says they have to be this way or they have to be that way, you know, or they have to understand this or they have to understand that. I will add to that, though, that I do feel like I would like some friends who um, perhaps have had some of the experiences that I've had, you know, and, and maybe you know, I don't know. We'll see. That, that's just it. I guess it's finding, finding friends and, and building a little bit of some strong bonds there is really the next step. That's what I'd say. Well, and it's always safer to not have community or make friends in case you're leaving, right? Like as a yeah. kid, if you're forced to leave, that was traumatic. So it's like, well, I'm going to fix that. I'm not going to have very many because then I won't have to experience that again. Yeah. I mean, when we were kids in Japan, Every kid in the school I went to was a diplomat or worked for an international business. And it was literally like a video game where you'd have like this little, you know, like, a, you know, the, the, the claws that go down and they pick up the toys in the games. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, everybody knew that at any minute the claw would come and your friend would get plucked. So everybody walked around like, well, I may, I may never see Richard or Tori or 
can like they could just be gone tomorrow like suddenly mm -hmm. they just moved back to korea or they moved back to nigeria or the philippines or wherever it was because we were an international school and so and it happened all the time it was like you'd come to school and I'd be like yeah man i'm moving back to france next week and it was like i'm in tokyo i'm 14 years old i'm never going to see this person again and it was gut-wrenching and you always knew it could happen at any minute so that was very difficult on us psychologically i realized and i i've talked to other third culture kids and that's a very common trait is having a difficult time creating those bonds and friendships because you've been really trained not to yeah so that's a big step forward and that's something i really in my life i'm 53 i don't believe i have to have i don't believe that it's impossible at all at 53 i think at any age you can make great friends and create real bonds and that's something that's really important to me but without having it be you know something i have to go solve right now i'm willing to just let it happen too beautiful yeah okay last question yep what is currently coming up in your community right now and how are you holding space for it or supporting your community in it yeah so this is a good question for me right now because it's something i'm very focused on um, in my community, which would be the community of artists. Um, and I specifically say artists, not gallerists, not gallery owners, not collectors, creators, but artists, people who make art and people specifically in the world of fine art. Um, and I am inclusive of all arts, but for the, for the community that I would call mine, it would really be fine artists. And I think that the, the theme or topic that is really important to me and that I think is extremely important to artists, and I don't think enough artists even acknowledge it or know how to yet, is the idea of art um, really becoming much more, uh, removing a lot of the elitism of art. And I mean intellectual elitism and financial elitism. And by that, I don't mean that we all have to go get spray paint and go outside. Uh, I think that what I mean very specifically is that quote unquote difficult art, um, art that's maybe a little complex or challenging still is something that can be totally available to everybody. And really how do we, how do we bridge that gap as artists? How do we take on the responsibility ourselves of solving that? Not waiting for the institutions to solve it, not waiting for uh, the powers that be in the art market to solve it. How do we solve that? And so that's something I am very invested in as an artist because I really believe in it. Um, and my proof that I use for myself of why that's important, because it sounds good, right? Gosh, yeah, art should be for everybody. And you know, I could certainly get 10 people in a room and have a debate and there could be a very cogent argument that says, maybe art shouldn't be for everybody. Maybe it should only be for a few people. You know, I don't wanna have that debate because I know in my heart that that's not true and that's not okay. And the proof I have of that is that whenever I show my work, um, I have just the most incredible conversations with uh, people who are not artists themselves or are not gallerists or writers or curators and collectors. And I have great conversations with those people too, but really interestingly, the conversations I enjoy the most and I find the most interesting, engaging and en enriching, uh, and the ones that really feed my soul as an artist 
are with people who are not artists, not part of the art world. And the questions they ask are great and they're difficult, they're challenging, they're emotional, they're extremely heartfelt. Um, and so that is proof to me that there's something going on in the art world right now and it's been going on for a long time where there's a separation that that's not allowed enough. It's not, it's not a normal part of our culture and I wanna help solve that. And so that's something I'm working on and I'm really committed to working on as an artist. And part of that is by having conversations about it. As you know, I've started my own podcast to begin those discussions with people. I've considered self-exhibiting my work and inviting people in to see it, discuss it, participate in it. I wanna look at how we can break down some of those existing paradigms and models. And for me, that's um, personally important, artistically important, and I think it's politically important. I think it is a, a, a wonderful way to have a ripple effect in the world um, that is fundamentally democratizing. It's, it's our world, it's the people's world, we make the choices, we make the decisions. And I think anywhere you can empower that um, is just absolutely necessary today. So that's the, you know, that's what I'm working on with my community right now, hoping to work on more. I think that is a beautiful place to close today. Okay. It's just beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, yeah. Thank you for giving your time and your magic to this episode. Mm, I just get, I get to say it on the podcast. I love you. <laughs> I love you too. <laughs> I really do. I used to tease. I still tease that I married you for your talent, but I did because <laughs> you just channel magic. So thank you. Mateo for being you in this world. Um, yeah. Will you please share where our listeners can find you and your work after this episode? Yes, absolutely. So if you want to see my work, you can just go to my website, mateogutierrez.net. Um, and you can follow me on Instagram. It's at Mateo Embroiders. And so those are the two easiest ways to find me. Don't forget your podcast. And my podcast, which I just started, um, it's called Devouring Saturn, and it's on Google, Apple, and Spotify. And for all my astrology geeks and nerds out there, we're going to have a heyday with that title. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun one. You can actually go listen to why I titled it that way. You go find the podcast. So there's a little bit on why is it titled Devouring Saturn? It's a good little story, I think. Totally. But just so y'all know, I'm trying to get him to have me on his podcast so I can break down Saturn so that we get like this like out of the, the title. I just love it so much. So, Thanks. all right. All of those links will be below in the show notes. So make sure to go follow his podcast, follow him on Instagram and go check out his work on his website. And thank you my dear magic makers for listening. I love you so very much. And I hope your magic spark found you in this episode. 
Now it's time, if you haven't already, to hit the subscribe button so you never miss this magic. If this episode has you thinking of someone else who needs this spark, share it. And if it resonates with you to rate and review the podcast, I would be ever so grateful. The more ratings and reviews the show has, the easier it is for other seeking souls to find their healing home base. It's a super simple way for you to support someone else's healing. If you have topics you'd like to hear me cover or guests you'd like to hear on the show, or hey, you just want to say hi, DM me on Instagram at Tandy underscore Gutierrez. And make sure to check out all of my offerings at unicornwellnessstudio.com. Links are below in the show notes. I love you so very much. And remember, healing is for you. And it all starts with just that 